0: welcome to Foothills Youth Podcast, where we help people follow Jesus. I hope these resources are a blessing to you. We are a student ministry based out of Northwest Calgary, and our hope, our desire, is that we see students become resilient disciples in a post-Christian nation. So may this podcast just be a blessing to you in your journey. (laughs) Ha ha ha. I do said my good joke. night <laughs> because <laughs> know Yeah. Yeah, Monday uh, the 27th Oh my Yeah, Monday the 27th uh, was the anniversary of the International Day of the So 75 years ago 75 years in the uh, the Russian army, uh, the Red liberated uh, the Perkin Constitution. Just the same just happened. Do something like that to murder millions and millions of people, or even thousands of people, or even one person, for being different than they are. But it's very, very important to remember that the Nazi sentences will be offended. Let me start here. The the questions we're going to try to deal with are very, very difficult questions. That many, many bright people, many good people. And I'm going to try and give you a general sense of some of the ways to sort of think about these problems because they're serious problems. Um, paradox or difficulty between what Jesus says and what Jesus does and what you read in other scripture or what you hear other Christians teaching about or what you see other Christians doing. Filter what you hear and see through the teaching of the word of Jesus Christ. The scriptures tell us that Jesus is the word of God. This, uh, this passage in the, the Gospel of John John is the one of the stories in the language. The very beginning of this story of the life of Jesus, that uh, the author says that Jesus uh, in the beginning was the Word, uh, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and Word is a weird way to talk about a person. It's John's way to kind of say that Jesus is the truest, most perfect way that God reveals God to us. And so uh, when we want to think about Jesus, we want to think about Jesus as the Word, the true and perfect uh, the author to the book of Hebrews uh, the book of Hebrews tells you is the author and finisher of our faith. You know, the beginning of it, and end it. So I'm going to say a bunch of things tonight, but this is the bottom line. If you uh, sort of tune out, or if this is too much uh, uh, angst or bother or frustration for you, or you don't like the topics, we're all fine, you know, and stuff. Um, the bottom line is this. Look to Jesus. Follow Jesus. Love Jesus. Let the Spirit of God fill you So by grace, we're real grateful for this time you've given us together. Uh, I'm really grateful for these, uh, these young people who come here uh, to spend time with one another, to worship you, um, to uh your <coughs> word, grow together uh, as young Christians or people who live towards Christ. Grant us that the capacity to hear. Spirit, we pray that you will be here presently. Let's jump in. Uh, so your questions, at least this is how Andrew uh, communicated your questions to me, so I mean you just tell me him, I mean, to me. Uh, he said He uh, said, these are the sort of the questions you gave me. Why does the God of the Old Testament seem so much, uh, seems so different, so much sort of meaner and unpleasant than the God of the New Testament? <laughs> so, and just generally, why in some parts of the Bible does God seem to be just such a terrifying dude? Like, why is that happening in the Bible? I hear a people against that? that's a legitimate question. Why is that going on? Okay, so let's start with the, the, the Old Testament and New Testament sort of conflict that we've talked about. Sometimes. Um, and I often hear people talk about it as though uh, um, the God of the Old Testament is somehow a different God than the God of the New Testament. This has let me establish this right now. This has never been a Christian belief. This is not something that Christians have actually uh, believed historically, and this doesn't really match up with how the Bible actually works. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, there was a really famous pastor uh, uh, yeah. in the United States, and Christian said, "It's time for Christians to unhook yeah. ourselves from the Old Testament. So get rid of the Old Testament. Take the New Testament. Jesus, God a really good guy, about the Old Testament. are and, and this implies there's are kind of like a radical. Uh, between these two, between Jesus and Jesus, the God of God, the Old Testament, bad guy and the good guy, the mean, father God, and nice Jesus. Um, so, first of all, just historically speaking, uh, a long time ago, in around like the 34th century, there was a guy named Marcion who was a relatively early Christian. Uh, and Marcion believed all these things. He believed that this God in the Old Testament was really the With what the Bible actually does say, what the Bible actually does do about God, and I want to show you sort of what I'm talking about. This way, we we sometimes think about the Old Testament is about like mean legalistic God, and the New Testament is about loving grace-filled Jesus. So I'm going to show you I want to show you two Old Testament passages where God is profoundly loving and filled with grace. I want to show you two New Testament passages where God is a little scary and it uh, seems sort of judgmental. Um, the, the God that we see across Scripture is the same God. Uh, scripture actually is actually quite consistent about the nature of, of God. So, really quickly, I'm going to run you through uh, four passages, two Old Testament, two New Testament. So, my my first Old Testament passage is the story of Hagar. Um, Hagar the story of Hagar is in Genesis chapter. The story of Hagar is in Genesis chapter 16. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to give you like the. Whole thing. And then uh not <laughs> a that thing? Like you read Hamlet and don't understand it and you read the other book that tells you what hamlet about. We used to call it cold note. Oh I can't it's the same thing. And you're all like, no, I read Hamlet and I understood it. Uh, <laughs> okay, um there there's a story in uh, in Genesis where Abraham and his wife Sarah are trying to conceive a child and and they can't conceive a child and they really believe they're supposed to have a child, because God said they're we gotta eventually have a child and this is going to be how God sort of built uh, the people of Israel. And, uh, uh, and then eventually Abraham and Sarah get kind of tired of trying to waiting for God to figure this out. And they said, well, we'll figure it out. And so what they do is um, Sarah has a servant, a uh, sort of slave woman, uh, named Hagar, who works for her. And she says to Abraham, just you sleep with Hagar, and, uh, and she'll have a baby, and then that baby is going to be, we'll just take the baby. That is exactly as sketchy of a proposal as it sounds to you. That's not cool. Um, it was a relatively normal thing to do at that time and place, but certainly God, uh, as you know, if you keep reading the story, God is not a big fan of this attempted solution. Uh, but they, they go through with it, and they have a child. And it turns out that while well, this was Sarah's idea, uh, after the child's born, she treats Hagar very, very badly. Um, and uh, it's very aggressive enough, of course, uh, and unpleasant towards Hagar. And Hagar suffers terribly. In the midst of her suffering, this this, woman, this slave woman, this outcast, this like this person who's only not even really part of the family, who's being rejected by the woman who was her mistress, and being rejected by this woman, who put her in this situation. Hagar cries out to God, and this is uh, Genesis 16, starting at verse 11. And the angel of the Lord said to Hagar, "Behold, you're pregnant; you'll have a son, and you'll call his name Ishmael, for the Lord has listened to your suffering." And he'll be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and the hand of everyone will be against him. And he will live in hostility with his brothers. So she called the name of the. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are Elroy. This is the only woman in the entire Bible who gives God a name. She calls him Elroy, which in Hebrew means the one who sees. So because she looked, and in her terrible situation, she looked, at God and God saw her. And it may sound like it's a weird answer to prayer. I'm going to make him a wild donkey of a man. But I got to tell you, if to and is going to be against you. wild not, not a bad personality traits. It's going to be helpful to him eventually. So she she, she cries with God and God, in his grace, in his love, in his mercy. He meets her. He meets her personally. He meets her carefully. He loves and he cares for you. He'll do that again later on in other parts of the story. It's an example. In the midst of a, a troubling and difficult text, God is on the side of this oppressed, outcast woman. Get another story. This is a main character of a woman again. Uh, and this is one of my very favorite books in the Old Testament. This is the book of Ruth. Uh, relatively short book, four chapters, easy to read, good story. I'm not, I'm just gay. Maybe like the short version. Uh, there's a woman named uh, named Ruth who was married into a family. Um, the family are Israeli, but Ruth's not in Israel. She's not from the people of Israel. Uh, they live away from Israel. And then all of the men in the family died, which is a really big deal back in the day. I mean, in our culture, not the end of the world, it means terrible and awful. Love. But in, in that time and place, you don't just lose people you love; you lose your entire capacity to take care of yourself. And so there's there's this woman Ruth and her mother Naomi, and they are uh, without husbands in a foreign land, and they are in terrible, terrible danger. And so they come back to Israel and come back to uh, the town Bethlehem, which is the town that uh, Naomi comes from. In and in this town, uh, the whole thing happens. In the story, like nothing happens like the most boring story in the Bible. is so wonderful. All that happens is they come back to town, they don't have any money, she meets a guy, they get married, and everything okay. That's the whole story. Nothing else happens to him. And, and it's a wonderful story because all it is, is a group of people doing the things that God said that they should do, following the law that not laid out, and as they follow the law that laid out, they know, the lot. faithful people doing what God wants them to do. So God gave them a method by which they could save a lives. Two outsiders in very serious danger of falling right off the edge of society are redeemed. When the law is followed appropriately, the law in that story is God's love and grace. God takes care of Ruth when she cries it to Him personally. God takes care, or he takes care of, sorry, of Hagar when she cries it to Him personally. He takes care of Ruth and Naomi um, with the law that he prepared for his people. God takes care of his people in the Old Testament. And those are two stories he can do dozens of stories easily. The Old Testament is filled, it's filled to the brim with stories of God's love and compassion and grace. Let's talk about the New Testament for a second. Uh, anybody ever read uh, Acts chapter 5, the story of An- Ananias and Sapphira? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you are like, yeah, that's a sketchy story, man. <laughs> oh, okay, I'm not I'm going to give you the whole thing. So the book of Acts is, uh, is the story of the very earliest church. That's what the book of Acts is about, right? So all of, like, the first thing that ever happened to the church. And, uh, and so you get all these kind of cool stories about, like, the these early Christians and only a couple of thousand of them who responded to gather together and were taking care of each other and everybody's feeding the people who need to be fed uh, and taking care of the people who are, who are outcasts of society and slaves are coming to Christians and getting freed by the master. It's very cool. And I love this. Uh, it says that a lot of Christians are bringing um, land and, and they're selling their land and giving it to the church to sort of help feed uh, and house the, the poor amongst them and the poor around them. And in the middle of that, like this really cool, beautiful story. Uh, there's these two characters named Ananias and Sapphira, a husband and a wife, and they do what everybody else does. They go and sell a bunch of land, they get a bunch of, land, they get a lot of money, and they sell a bunch of land and they bring it to the church, but in their hearts they're like, look. Uh, we would like to look really good. So we're gonna give some money to the church, but we also like money. And so we're gonna like sell this land, and we're gonna say we're giving the money to the church, but we're gonna like pocket a big chunk of this. That's their plan, they're gonna essentially extort some money from their to God. And so they do this, and they give the gift, uh, and, and Peter the Apostle says to them, did you, uh, you lie about this? And they say, yeah. And God kills them, right there. Like, they die, That's the story. I mean, actually mean that's the whole story. Nothing else happens. So it's a two that story. story that is really hard to justify. I mean, have you never like kind of like dipped a little bit, or have you ever, like you know I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to give. Uh, I'm going to give some money to uh, to Goodwill. Or I'm going to give some money to this charity, or even I'm going to give money to church. I'm going to give uh, to church, and then you like you didn't get to give everything that you give, and it's so really just its would that seem fair? Does that not, not seem like a little intense? So I mean, even in this New Testament passage that is surrounded by stories about God's love and grace and above the, the beauty and the grace of this early Christian. You know, there's this pretty sharp story of God's very abrupt judgment. Another story of grace. This is a story that Jesus tells. And we all like Jesus being Christians. We should like it. I mean, I hope, I mean we should like Jesus as part of our deal. Um, in Matthew chapter 25, uh, Jesus tells this story uh, about the, uh, the sheep and the goats. Anybody ever read this story? He has uh, this parable. A parable is like one of these, uh, these uh, metaphorical stories that Jesus tells. And in this story about the sheep and the goats, he sort of tells a story about the end of time, and God comes to judge the world, and, uh, and he says, uh, you bunch of people go over there, and you bunch of people go over there, but they're not people. He sends goats that way and sheep that way. He separates go the goats to bed. And at the end of the story, he goes through and he looks at the sheep and he says, uh, when you fed hungry people, when you visited people in prison, when you did, he goes through a list of very good things that people should do. He said, you did those things to me. I was those people that you were feeding and sheltering and loving and, and, and caring for. Uh, and he says, well done, go to your rest. And, and he blessed them that way. And he looks at the ghost and he says to the ghost, uh, when, when you failed, to visit that person in prison, when you fail to be that hungry person. when You fail to show love to your neighbor. You are failing to do those things to me. And so, uh, where is it? It's verse thirty-one, I think. Here, I'm going to read this one. It's a little kind and interesting. Um, oh no, it's a little bit further down. Uh, where is it? Oh, here we go. And he says those on. Then he will say to those on his left, "This is the ghost. Depart from me." You accursed ones, into the eternal fire that has prepared, been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and he did not give me anything to eat. I was thirsty, and he did not give me anything to drink. And I was a stranger, and he did not welcome me as a guest. Naked, he did not clothe me. Sick, in a prison, and he did not care uh, for me. And they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or a prisoner, and not serve you? And then he'll answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to the least of these, not do it for me, and these will depart into eternal punishment, and the righteous into eternal life. So God essentially, the goats, are sent away into eternal punishment not for doing things that are evil, but for failing to do things that are good. Which again seems, uh, maybe seems justified to you, but it's quite an extreme punishment. Isn't it? And it certainly isn't uh, all unicorns and rainbows. Uh, it's, it's not any more or less here. All of this is to, to, to just answer this first question. Is, is the God of the Old Testament different than the God of the New Testament? No, not really. Um, God is God all the way through, and scriptures give us a relatively unified portrait of who God is. The is the God of the Old Testament a big me and the God of the New Testament all nice and fluffy? No, not really. The God of the Old Testament is filled with grace and love and mercy, as is the God of the New Testament. The God of the New Testament. Judges uh, people as does the God in the And here's the thing, and I'm going to come back to this in a couple minutes. We actually want this. We sometimes talk like we don't want this, but we do want this. We do want somebody to be taken care of. People. Um, and we also desperately, desperately want somebody to forgive. Them because we need that so much. So we're going to come back to that. Part. Okay. I'm going to jump into the. The second part of the question, uh, which is in many ways kind of the, the tougher part of the question, does God command genocide in the Old Testament? And the short answer is yes, kind of, sort of. It's a little more complicated than that. The short answer is kind of yes, which is pretty troubling. Um, and I'm going to use a specific passage. We do use a bunch of passages, but I'm using. Specific uh, Joshua chapter six. Everything the story is the story of uh, the city of Jericho being uh, conquered by the Israelites. The Israelites have come up out of Egypt. They wandered around the desert for 40 years. They're coming to the land of Canaan, which God says He's going to give to them. They cross over the Jordan River, and like, the first city they find there is a big fortified city called Jericho. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm going to give you like the baby version here, where uh, the, uh, the really short version of the story. Um, Basically, God says, you're not going to send an army against Jericho. Uh, he says, what you're going to do is you're going to march on the city sometimes, and you're going to blow a bunch of horns, and then the sea walls are going to fall down. You know, that's barely a picture of one God's part, I will say. Um, and, and then God says, in this passage, um, that, that the people are to, um, well, I'm going to actually read it for you. Joshua, this is Joshua chapter 12. Um, or right around verse 12. Yeah, I'm going to start at verse 12. Then Joshua got up early in the morning. And the priest took up the ark of the Lord. This is the, the boss the church. The, the, uh, the seventh priest carrying the seven trumpets, so the ram's horns before the ark, of the Lord went on continually, and they blew the trumpets, and the armed men went before them. And the rear guard came back on, right? They're marching around the city, and marching around the city for six days. And on the seventh day, they rise, and they march around the city again, and they blow the trumpet, and they shout, that the Lord has given me the city. And the city and all its end will be devoted to the Lord. So that's an important word. We're gonna come back to that word, devoted. Rahab, the prostitute, so this woman named Rahab, who helped out a bunch of Israelite spies in the last story. She lives in the city. They're going to let her live. As for you, keep away from the things devoted to the destruction, that you do not take them and bring them, uh, bring above your own, destruction, your own object, destruction, destruction. So they're supposed to take everything in the city all the bronze, all the iron, all the beautiful things. Are we destroyed? So in that sense for the Israelites, that's what that means. You sort of convert or die, sort of the idea. So the passage is genocide is the way we think about the word genocide. When we say genocide, we mean like um, something like ethnic cleansing where you pick up a, a certain people group because they're not like you or because you mean them, you kill all of them. That's not quite what's going on here. But this is very horrible violence. Uh, and yes, it is like murdering innocent children. So, the fact that it's not genocide doesn't really help much. It's still really awful. So, does God in Joshua 6 commanding Israel like to kill children, and do they do it? The only answer to that question is yes. Unequivocally, unequivocally, yes. That's the answer to that question. How do we explain it? without God being a monster? Because a lot of people would be this. I mean, if you think of famous these like... Uh, or Richard They read us to say God is a monster. What kind of monster do you he? Um, well, a couple of things. First of all, we're talking about violence between people who are all playing more or less by the same rules. This is not only Israelites would do. The Canaanites would also do that. It's a very normal thing in this kind of place. That doesn't make it right, but it makes it an understood quantity in the ancient world. And in a very meaningful sense. Like Joshua chapter 6 reflects God speaking to a certain group of people at a certain time and a certain place. And you maybe have heard somebody say to you at some point that everything the Bible is for you specifically, and that's not true. All of the scriptures are for you, all, of the, scriptures for you. all of the scriptures are the way that God reveals God's self to us. But not every command in the Bible is a command that is for you. Uh, I, I, I remember the first time somebody ever said this to me, and I was like, oh. It was just a gas. Like, no, the whole Bible is for me. It's the Bible, it's God's love letter for me. I have to do everything it says. And he says, really, because God commanded Abraham to have a child in his old age, or you going have a child in your old age. I'm like, yeah, that's for Abraham. He's like, wow. Yeah, there's a like context around that story. It's like, i never thought about that. <laughs> and, and, and the same is true of the story of Joshua. Are these commands for us to go out and to murder people who are not like us? And you'll say, who would ever interpret this passage that way? And I would say lots of people have interpreted this passage that way. Uh, In point of fact, one very common interpretation of the book of Joshua, uh, we find in, uh, in early Christian settlers in North America who see the land of North America as the Canaan that God has promised them, and they see the indigenous people who live here as Canaanites who are supposed to be wiped out. Eventually inconsistent with what God is going to say to Christians through Jesus Christ. The Bible, this is very important. This question that you guys have asked is actually not really about God's nature, it's actually really about what the Bible is like. Um, I I think this is a question about the Bible more than a question about anything else. The Bible is contextual, and no single part of the Bible tells the entire story. We aren't replacing older bits of the Bible with newer bits. We're not like dumping Joshua and just reading Matthew. What we're doing is we're placing Joshua in the same context as Matthew. We're letting what Jesus does in Matthew explain what happens to Joshua. The the problem here is not that God was mean and then God got nice. It's not that God changed. The problem is that humankind is getting to know God slowly at a pace that we as humans can manage. God isn't changing, God is changing his people. But he doesn't change them all at once for whatever reason. Again, this might be one of those, I mean, that's about my favorite questions, but it seems like God is not changing his people all at once, but over time, and in a language that they can understand that they can access. And so the, the thing you find in the Old Testament, the people of Israel are being called to be more in line with God's character than they were before. But we don't have the entire story. The story takes time to get through the whole story. And just think about this. How, how would you like God to change you? If God is going to be in the business of changing, you and know, I hate to break it, but God is in the business of changing you. Um, how would you like God to change you? How does change work in our lives? Change that's effective, especially change in really deep, really broken, really terrible parts of us, it, it takes a long one of the things that this passage teaches us is that God comes to find us and comes to speak to us where we are and in a language that we understand. But God also refuses to leave us where we are. He changes us slowly, yes, slowly. But he draws us along with him as he works to return us into a relationship with himself along with the rest of the creation. In a significant way, the problem that we're here is a problem with how we read the Bible. If we read the Bible as like a flat manual for theology and context doesn't matter and literary genre doesn't matter uh, and where it is in the story doesn't matter, where every verse is exactly the same weight, we're going to run into problems like this. This is not the only problem. We're going to actually run into lots and lots and lots of problems. But the Bible isn't designed that way. And that's a very important thing for us to understand. Um, if, on the other hand, we read the Bible through the lens of God's truest and most perfect revelation of Himself, who is Jesus Christ. We're given a deeper context that can help us to understand what's going on. I mentioned before the idea of Jesus Christ as the Word of God. Uh, this is the it comes to John, beginning with the, Lord, the Word. of A famous German theologian Karl Hart, who used to talk with the fact that Jesus is God's truest message to humanity. This is how God shows us um, and, and the word of God, as in the Bible, is the way that we get to know Jesus. So you can think of it as sort of capital W word, Jesus, and small w word, the scriptures. And the scriptures are the witness that help us to see who God is through Jesus Christ. Uh, another way to think about this is that over a very, very long period of time, human beings are accumulating as we move through history, God tells us more of his story. And so the older parts make a little bit more sense as we go no along. And they actually, the meaning might actually change a little bit as we go along. And we can maybe look back on that. This sort of genocidal, if we want to call it that, this genocidal stuff that happens in Joshua in chapter 6, and we actually can be troubled by it and say that isn't God wants to to kill That God does not want us to kill and that God, in fact, For those who How would it change your readings if we thought about all these hard passages through that lens of Jesus Christ? I thought about who we should be looking through the lens of Jesus Christ. In, in that situation, is any form of genocide, is any form of cultural annihilation ever acceptable for Christians anywhere? And that's a failed in this dramatic over the of our history. one example, I'm reading a book right now by a theologian named uh, Willie Jennings and he tells a story uh, from the 1440s of Portugal, from all uh, and he tells the story of the first group of African slaves who have been captured in Africa and brought to Portugal um, this is the, the beginning of what we call the northern Atlantic slave trade uh, where Christians, almost uniformly, Christians go down from Europe, south to Africa, physically capture other human beings who they believe to be less than they are, and then bring them back to Europe or across the sea, North America, to work for no money, uh, to be essentially kept animals. And in the story that Jennings tells about the bringing of these people to Portugal, he he quotes a whole bunch of documents from a historian who's like, there on that day, and this guy frames all of this as though, you know, this is like a wonderful Christian thing, the Portuguese people are doing, bringing these people to Portugal, and we're going to convert them to Christianity while we keep them as slaves. It is actually okay for us to look back on that and see that as a a radical, dramatic failing of the Christian That was wrong. Framed their arrival in North America and their expansion across the continent um, and their murder of the people who already lived there, they framed. these Are two specific instances we could have, we could, we could list many, 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 many But these are two specific instances where uh, the kinds of passages that we're talking about in the Old Testament were really dramatically misinterpreted by Christians. Well, not the present, but not very long ago. I mean, the last residential school I was alive and it was closed, so not very long ago. Um, they were dramatically misinterpreted by our fellow Christians. What can we do about that? Well, I think there's a couple of things. Oh we can say there's about God uh, no, What we're sort of talking about is, this <laughs> I mentioned this already. Different kind of yeah. down. On the one hand, uh, we don't want God to be judge, sort of judgmental, but on, on yeah. the other hand, we kind of do. And on the one hand, we really, really want God to be full of grace and mercy, except for we kind of don't. No. And we feel a lot of tension between those two things. Um, what am I talking about? Think about, uh, for example, think about kind of Yeah. justice in the world, we want those who do evil to be controlled and to be punished, and we also want them to be forgiveness in the world, because we understand that eventually an eye for an eye makes the whole world war.
1: And this is what we would call
0: um, a paradox. And a paradox is not a contradiction, sometimes people say a paradox is just a contradiction, it's not a contradiction. Uh, a paradox is two seemingly contradictory things that actually that don't have an obvious solution, but they're probably the deeper truth behind. And one of the things I want to try to encourage you to understand is that, in the end, to a certain degree, this is actually probably more God's problem than it is. It doesn't sound like a but I don't mean it to me. But at a certain level, I don't get to judge the world. Nobody gave me that job. right? Like I said before, that is above my pay grade and my capacity. Um, I don't get to decide to whom I will attend it doesn't mean that nobody's ever going to judge evil. I do actually authentically believe that God will judge people. And I believe that God will judge evil justly. But what I do know is that when Jesus talked about the things we're talking about, remember I said, you want to pass this all through the lens of Jesus. When Jesus talked about the things we're talking about, what I do know is that Jesus said that we should stand, extend mercy and forgiveness to a fault. Right? His disciples come to him and they say, hey, uh, no, oh, like 70 times, 77 times, right? And, and that's sort of like a, a, a kind of sarcastic way of saying, no, 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 it's a stupid question. Forever, that's the answer. There's no end, you don't like multiply up how many times you want to time up to here, 14 times. once, twice, no, hello, there's no end limit in the answer that Jesus gives. You forgive to all. And when Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray, said they should pray for forgiveness as they wish to be forgiven. Forgive us our sins and we forgive the sins of those who have sinned against us. Is what Jesus said. Jesus said we should forgive and we should be forgiven. When it came to the opportunity for Jesus to either fight uh, to escape or to sacrifice himself, right when the, a bunch of uh, Roman guards and people show up and they're going to take him away and they're going to crucify him. Jesus has this option, I can try to fight, I can try to run away, but he doesn't. He sacrifices himself. And when this moment comes, he doesn't just sacrifice himself. He says to Peter, Peter grab the sword and take it out and he's going to fight. And Jesus said, put that away. And he doesn't, Jesus is not stupid enough what's going to happen. He does that in Having said, all oh, that, I also know that God said that he will judge rightly. That he will repair the terrible things of evil. That sin has done to his creation. And so, what do I do with all this? And I'm just going to say this is what I do with all this. I'm not actually trying to answer this unequivocally. Kind of what I do with all this is I trust God to judge right? And I follow Jesus in his path of radical mercy and forgiveness. Look, is the Bible uh, hard to understand sometimes? Yeah. Very obviously, said. yes. It's to is God a terrible Moral monster. No. God is not a monster. God loves you. Profoundly. More profoundly than you possibly imagine or understand. And if you want to know God in this way, what I, what I would encourage you is to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus who gave without asking, who loved without love condition, and who sacrificed himself for all of creation. That is what the God that we worship looks Great. God of grace Of mercy and love. Yes, God of judgment, we're grateful for who you are. We're grateful for what you've done. We're grateful for the way you care for us, and we're grateful even for really difficult parts of the Bible that make us struggle and make us wonder and make us ask hard questions. And my prayer for these young people tonight is that they will stop asking these questions. My prayer for them is that they won't be uh, afraid to really press into.